All right, Missy, if you would, go ahead and grab a Bible. Open up to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Everybody, can you guys give a round of applause to the band and to Nate? If you don't know, Nate's been in a two-year-long residency with us at Missio, and that residency is coming to an end at the end of June. So if you haven't given Nate enough hugs, this is your last month to do it. He'll be hug off limit after that. Hard off. However, I will not replace him in giving hugs. I give no hugs. Just joking. All right, Acts chapter 1. Pretty often, um, pretty often, I get asked the question, as Christians and as followers of Jesus and as the community of faith, how do we know that what we do matters? How do we know that the work that we're doing, how do we know that the thing that God has called us into, how do we know that this like story that we are participating in, how do we know that this thing called like being the church, like how do we know that it actually matters? How do we know that following Jesus, the way he has called us to genuinely matters? For the last few weeks, we've been in a series entitled Good Trouble, and we have been exploring these kind of peculiar and strange habits and practices and behaviors that God calls the people into. These kind of like weird, maybe even backwards ways of being the church. And if you've been with us, then you know that those habits, they're not normal, they're not efficient, they're not straight lines to some kind of like outcome or success. They are weird and perpendicular ways, I think that's how uh, geometry works, of getting to different places. A lot of humanities degrees, no math degrees. Right, those habits are not straight lines, though. They are not efficient. They are strange and peculiar. They give up power. They put us in a position of servanthood. They value others above ourselves. They actually ask us to take all the things that we know about our lives, our world, and to say, reverse it. Put it upside down. Put it in submission to the kingship and kingdom of Jesus. Live differently. And so as we hear those habits and those stories and those practices, like they can be compelling, but I think at the exact same moment that they are compelling, well, we can wonder, are they effective? Do they matter? Like, especially as we look at those practices in light of everyday life, I think we can really begin to ask, are they effective? Right? Sometimes we try to kind of like practice these peculiar things that God calls us into, and we experience like serious resistance. So we try and proclaim and live this good news of the kingdom, and people don't want it, or we don't see results, or there's no change around us. And we can wonder, well, is that the best way to go about this thing? Or we can be faced with like the reality of a lot of bills and debts or just family dreams and hopes and goals and expectations. And those goals and those expectations and those dreams can run right into the reality of Jesus saying to value differently, to practice giving up power. And we can decide that maybe we are actually not all that interested in them. Or 
We can just get distracted by other mechanisms to change the world. I feel like there's a lot of options on the table for us. And those other options and those other ways of being, those other ways of changing the world can feel more effective. And in light of that other use of power, that other use of changing the world, or the other use of like shaping things around you, we can decide that the practices that Jesus has given us or the way that he's called us into life can actually be ineffective, insignificant, or even inadequate. I have uh, confessed this, I think, a handful of times on stage, but I'm a person who is very easily distracted by current events or politics. So I think, especially in this moment, I love consuming news. I love to listen to political podcasts. I love to like put my mind in that space. And so very quickly, I can get really distracted by all of those things that are happening around me. And I can quickly have my faith co-opted by my politics. Meaning that all of a sudden, I believe the best way to do this thing called be the church is actually to do it politically. Or I believe the best way to change the world is actually politically, or through this party, or through that party, or through the practices that I see engaged there, or through the use of power that I see engaged there. Like for me, it's so easy to get distracted and co-opted by those things, to think that that is actually the way to change the world. And this other thing that we're doing, gathering around the table, proclaiming the story of Jesus, practicing submission, like that's maybe not as effective. Maybe it's not as powerful. Maybe it doesn't matter as much. The good news for us is that we're not alone in asking these questions. The people of God have always been wondering whether or not the thing that God calls them into is effective or whether it matters or whether it actually can shape the world around them. They've constantly been asking these questions. Ancient Israel would often ask God why he gave them strange teachings. Right? If you ever read the Torah, it is weird. And Israel thought it was weird too. Like, we're not unique in thinking that. They're like, why do we have to do this? The other nations get to practice life differently. Why can't we be like them? Why can't we have a politics like them? Why can't we have a kingdom like them? Why can't we wage war like them? Why can't we do slavery like them? Why can't our economy be built on the same kind of principles and structure as the world around us? Why do we have to be strange and peculiar? You think maybe that would disappear with the followers of Jesus who are hanging out with Jesus, but constantly the disciples are asking Jesus the exact same question. Like, Jesus, why do you say such weird things? Like when Jesus is like, hey, everybody, if you want to be my follower, you need to eat my body. And Peter pulls him over and he's like, hey, that was weird. <laughs> like, if you want to grow this movement, stop telling people to eat you. Sometimes they don't understand it. Sometimes they ask why. And other times, like when Jesus says that he has to die on the cross to fulfill the mission that God has given them, Peter doesn't ask why. He says no. He simply says no, that that is not the way, Jesus, you will build your kingdom. All throughout Scripture, the people of Jesus are asking, why do we do it this way? The Apostle Paul will say that the habits and beliefs and stories of the church are so peculiar that it looks like foolishness to the world. He'll even say that it smells like death to some people. It is so strange 
and odd and backwards. So how do we know that what we do matter? How do we know that the things that we do matter? How do we know that they are effective or whatever kind of criteria you want to use? How do we know? These are the kinds of questions, too, that the biblical author Luke is setting out to answer in his kind of biblical writing project. So Luke writes this story of Jesus, which we know is the gospel of Luke. And he also writes this story of the early church, which is Acts. And he's been commissioned by this kind of somewhat anonymous figure named Theophilus. We don't know a lot about him, but we know that he most likely had some money, and he bankrolls this project to learn more about the Jesus story, including the people of the Jesus story. And underneath that is the question, why? Like, what, why do you do the thing that you're doing? Your Messiah, he was crucified. Why do you continue to do the thing that you're doing? Your followers are also being martyred. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you sell your property, collect it all together so that you can live in some kind of weird shared environment? Why do you do that? That's weird. So Luke sets out to tell the story, to say, okay, here's why we do the thing that we do. Here's how they report it. Here's how they understand it. And he begins his book about the story of the church with another story where the disciples are actually asking a similar set of questions about why Jesus does the things that he does and how they should understand their own work within it. So if you look at Acts 1, verse 6, the disciples ask Jesus a question. So they had gathered together, and the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is the question for the disciples. It's the question for Israel. It's the question for everyone who comes into contact with the early story of Jesus. Because they understand this thing that God is doing, this thing that Jesus is doing in national political terms. For them, Jesus is about restoring the hope of Israel, restoring the nation of Israel, building the kingdom of God, hopefully through the people of Israel. And they want that to happen in a really like political and national way. They want to overcome Rome, who is their current dominant power. And they want to be the dominant power. And so they ask, like, Lord, will you at this time do the thing that we hoped you would do? You talked about the kingdom, right? In the beginning, right before this moment in verse six, it says that Jesus was with them telling the story of the kingdom. So they've heard the story. He's talked about it in Luke. He's talked about it when he's with them. And so they're hoping, like, God, is this the moment when you're going to restore the kingdom? Is this what makes our work matter? The thing that we did with you, the life that we committed to you, are you going to make it matter now? God, when will you do it? Will it be soon? No, on the one hand, I think that is the right question to ask as followers of Jesus. Right? We know that Jesus has been on a mission we talked about this over the last couple of weeks, that Jesus is about restoring the kingdom, that he's calling us to participate in that work. So that is the right kind of question. The temptation, though, is that our allegiance to Jesus would become dependent on Jesus doing what we want, when we want it. Though we rarely name it that bluntly. The disciples are not naming it that 
blatantly, but so often our faith becomes dependent upon some kind of promise or hope or expectation that are adjacent to Jesus. And so then we measure the, the, the substance of our faith or whether our faith matters or whether the work that we do matters in light of that hope or that expectation or that promise. I cannot tell you how many friends I've had leave the church because they feel like some expectation was unmet. Maybe they hope to get married, and they hope that then getting married would lead to some kind of life. So they got married, and then it led to some kind of life, and it was not the life that they expected. So they grow disappointed either in the marriage, but often disappointment in the marriage leads to disappointment in the thing that you blame for the marriage, which is the church, and then often that goes all the way to Jesus. And you say that Jesus has failed you, or you're disappointed in that, and maybe it's not true altogether because your hope was laid in some promise adjacent to Jesus some expectation maybe near him, maybe connected to him, but not him. Or in the case of the disciples, like their hope is actually in something that Jesus did promise to do. But it's rooted in when he does it. And the problem is, as Jesus says, he says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He's like, those kinds of hopes, those kinds of promises, those kinds of expectations, they are impossible to get your hands around. You cannot hope in when or what, because every time you pursue them, every time you put your hope in them, they will always disappear as distant and out of reach. That doesn't mean that we're not motivated by the things that Jesus is accomplishing. Don't hear me wrong. Like, we are. But as we talked about even in the moment of prayer at the beginning, we live in a very real tension as followers of Jesus. We believe that his kingdom is coming, and yet it is not here. We believe that it has begun, but it is not complete. We believe that we are called to participate, to join in on that work, to extend that work, but it is not fully extended. And if we put our hope in saying that we will be the full extension of the kingdom of Jesus, well, on one hand, we will constantly be disappointed in our own work. And either we'll carry the weight of that or Jesus will carry the weight of that, that someone has failed in the equation. The problem is that the equation is simply wrong. And if we don't grow disappointed, I think the other side of that is then we will take onto ourselves the responsibility of making his kingdom a reality. And so we will force it into the world. And every time the kingdom is forced into the world, you compromise what kind of kingdom Jesus is building and you build a different one. So we are motivated by the things that Jesus is doing. But we live in a tension. And we don't know when he's fixed times or when he was accomplishing his purposes. And so therefore, when cannot be where our hope rests. We do not know how long we will suffer. We do not know how long we will wrestle. We do not know how long we will participate in the work that God is doing. We do not know how long. And so you cannot put hope in win. So what do we know? In light of this, what do we know? So I love this moment. If you just keep reading in Acts, Jesus doesn't really answer that question. Instead, he shows them. Look at verse nine. He says, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
I, I love this moment because it's like Jesus was just asked a really hard question and then instead of answering it, he was like, mm, bye. <laughs> but that moment, which for us is maybe peculiar or it's strange, like we're like, how do we, what is he doing? Where is he going? Like what? What are you doing, Jesus? This moment has immediate reference for the people who are watching it. Like, we're, we're disconnected, so it's hard for us. We're not super familiar with our Old Testament. But for the people who are watching this moment, it has immediate reference because it dates back to a very famous story in the history of Israel. With the Old Testament prophet, Daniel, who lives in exile in Babylon, he sees a vision. And that vision, it, it starts really weird. So I want to give you a little bit of context for it. It's Daniel chapter 7. And, and Daniel is seeing this vision, and it starts like this. He says, I saw my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And out of that sea came four beasts different from one another. So Daniel sees these like four beasts rise out of the sea and he's, he's dreaming this vision. He's like, it's weird, it's peculiar. And actually Daniel doesn't understand it at first. And so he has to have help interpreting it. And what he learns immediately is that the four beasts represent empires of the world. So he lives in a great empire, Babylon. And Babylon will often be metaphorically kind of the constant enemy of God's kingdom throughout the biblical story. Even when Babylon is gone, we still use that metaphor to talk about the thing that is against Jesus. So he's, he's in the empire, and these four beasts, they ravage the world. And so he's like, I understand that. This beast that I live in is ravaging the world. It's taking advantage of the communities around us. It's seeking violence in order to hoard, control, and acquire more power. And specifically, he sees a vision of these four beasts that are ravaging one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man has an interesting connotation. Sometimes it refers to Israel, but as we come to the story of Jesus, Son of Man becomes Jesus' favorite title for himself. Jesus loves to talk about himself as the Son of Man. So in this moment, we see one like the Son of Man who is being ravaged by the beast. But then Daniel sees the beast overthrown, their power taken away from them. And God sets up a throne, and then he sees this. He says, and behold, Pay attention. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to God and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So hold that image in your head. So Daniel sees a vision. One like the son of man comes with the clouds. Now, Fast forward to the Gospels, and you have this character named Jesus who loves to apply to himself the title of Son of Man. And he goes about proclaiming the good news of what? The kingdom. And he does it so much, and he does it so radically and so subversively that a beast, Rome, consumes Jesus, ravages him because they cannot handle the message that he is proclaiming, the story that he is telling. But then in the greatest reversal of all time, Jesus, the Son of Man, is resurrected and then in Acts 1 is taken up with the clouds. Where what happens? He is seated on the throne as the king of the universe. Luke, 
begins his story of the church with this moment. Why? Because we may not know when God's kingdom will be accomplished. When may be an ethereal place to put your hope. But we do know that we are currently the people of the present ruling and reigning king. The king who was crucified in love, who overcame sin and death, and now sits on his throne presently in authority over the entire world. Sometimes I think we miss this moment in our story of the gospel, the ascension moment. We miss telling this part, but it is so vital to our lives. It is something we need in order to answer the question, does what we do matter? Does there some substance or hope to to the present work that we're engaged in? Think about the way you often tell the gospel, maybe just to yourself or to your friends and family. What are like the the essential pieces or stages of the gospel that you tell? At Missio, we often say the gospel is the story of the kingdom of Jesus. He's doing this kingdom work. We got that. So then what are the stages of that? So I think often we have incarnation. God is in-breaking into the world, that Jesus has took on flesh. He's joined us in the midst of his work. Good, you have to have that. We have crucifixion. You have to have that. Jesus bore our sin into his body. He was crucified on the cross. He absorbed sin and death into himself. You have to have then resurrection. Yes, right. Celebrate that on Easter. We don't talk enough about Pentecost, which we're going to do next week. It's when God sends his presence to empower the community. Maybe we include church in that piece, that we are reconciled to God, reconciled to one another. Consummation, that Jesus is going to finish his work, restore the world to himself, right? Those are good, those are right pieces. But there's something missing from this story. And if you're looking at at the work or the stages of all of this, except for one item on there. All of these things are basically past events. In Greek, it's referred to as a perfect, which means that it happened once, but it has ongoing effects, right? So incarnation, past. Crucifixion, past. Resurrection, past. Pentecost, past. Consummation, that is future. Reconciliation, past. These are these things that God has like done or will be doing. But as then we look at our own life, we're like, well, is there any present tense hope Is there any present tense reality? Is there anything that we presently live into as the church? I think the story of the gospel that we so often tell, it actually, it leaves us with very little right here and right now. It's like, I feel like we're always like constantly in in the moment of turning the page and we're like, well, what part of the story are we in? And so I think no wonder we ask, why does it matter? No wonder we ask, like, where is our present power or our present hope or our present comfort? Because we don't tell a story that often includes a present tense reality to the gospel. The ascension, though, this moment in Acts 1, points to the present tense reality of the gospel that Jesus is king now. That Jesus is king currently. On our website, if you look under our belief statements, we have first listed the Apostles' Creed. And I love the way that the Apostles' Creed will kind of demonstrate this. If you could put it up on the screen. 
So if you look at these different pieces, it says, we believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord who was conceived, passed by the Holy Spirit and born past of the Virgin Mary. He suffered, passed under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, passed, passed, was buried, passed. He descended, passed into death. The third day he rose again, passed from the dead, but he ascended to heaven and is presently seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge future, the living and the dead. The kingship of Jesus is the good news of Jesus right here and right now. That's why Paul will say in Romans 10, 8, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe. The present reality that we hope in, that we put our trust in, that we put our strength in is the present rule, the present reign, the ongoing authority of Jesus that was consummated as he ascended to heaven and that continues right now, right here. We are first and foremost, Monsieur, a people of a king who is ruling right now. That is what defines us. That's what marks us. That's what we hope and that's what we live into. That's why we do the things that we do because Jesus is presently ruling and reigning. Maybe you're like, okay, that was a fun grammar lesson. But I don't, I don't know that I understand how it matters. Well, I think a little more grammar will actually help. So think about our belief statement and put it in past tense. Right? So take an idea like Jesus taught us 2,000 years ago to love our enemies. I think that's a powerful statement. It's a good idea. 2,000 years ago, this guy taught us to love our enemies. That's powerful. That's right. But it is not the same as the one who taught us to love our enemies is presently ruling in love over them. That is a different, that is a different statement. There is a different weight to that. There is a different power to that. There is a different hope in that. There is a different reality to that statement of whether our hope and our trust is past tense or present tense, whether some guy taught us 2,000 years ago to love our enemies or whether the God who reigns currently is inviting us to love our enemies, commanding that we love our enemies, ruling over our enemies even. Or you could say 2,000 years ago that Jesus told us to serve one another. Or you could say that Jesus, who is our present king, has established an economy that is built on abundance and grace and generosity. That is a different reality to live into. Whether our hope and our beliefs are past tense or present tense, whether we're just waiting for something to come in the future or whether we are living into something right here and right now. Missio, as the people of Jesus, we live into a new reality here and now. That's what makes us the church. What we do matters because Jesus is seated on the throne. It's the only thing that makes sense of any of this. Why would we gather here? Why would we try to practice differently? Why would we try to live differently? As you, as you read the story of Acts, why would you have Stephen who is martyred or Paul who ends the story in chains? Why would any of that make sense unless we currently believe that there is a new current king on the throne declaring a new reality? It's the only thing that makes sense of this work that we do. The uh, Bible scholar N.T. Wright, I think, says this brilliantly when he's talking about the whole book of Acts. He says, The whole book of Acts is the story of how Jesus 
exercising his power as the CEO of earth, as of heaven, sends out his followers as ambassadors to make his kingdom a reality. So the current king sends out his ambassadors. That's you and me, current reign, current rule, current work. That climaxes with the strange paradox of Paul in chains announcing that the Roman world has a new emperor. It is that paradox, indeed, that sets the tone of all kingdom work. You see, the only thing that makes sense with the life and the work of the church is the kingship of Jesus. Nothing else will do this justice. Nothing else will motivate us. Nothing else will be able to answer the question why, except for his present rule and reign. If we base our hope in waiting, I think that the wrestle, I think that the wait, and I think the distraction of the moment will always overcome it. We need a present hope, which is the present reality of Jesus' kingship. Today, as I mentioned earlier, is Ascension Sunday. Today, historically, the church has gathered to celebrate that Jesus is currently ruling and reigning. And in a second, what we'll do is we'll gather around the table because we believe that this is a moment for us to taste and see that kingdom. Here it is, the picture of what Jesus is doing. Everyone is invited under his authority. Everyone is welcomed. Everyone is given a space because of what he's done, because he's what accomplished. So in a second, we'll come here, we'll celebrate, we'll tell that story. But before we do, but you just ask yourself, what does it mean that Jesus is king now? Not then, not later. What does it mean that Jesus is king right now for you? How does Jesus' present kingship change your world? If you don't have an answer to that question, you are not thinking about it. If Jesus is presently king, if that is your politics, it changes everything what you do with your money, how you organize your family, how you think about allegiance, how you think about American politics, how you think about your love of your neighbor, how you think about how you share your faith and what you're proclaiming even. Everything has changed. So how does the present kingship of Jesus change your world? Maybe ask yourself, if I believe that Jesus is presently king, what tension will that lead to in my life? We are a people that are called to proclaim that Jesus is king and not the other kings of this world. That means Rome in the past. That means America now. That means our own hearts, our own minds, or whatever it is that you value, whatever it is that you put your identity in, those things don't get to be king anymore. And so what kind of tension will the kingship of Jesus challenge in your life or cause in your life? And maybe then the question is just for the, some of us is to ask, who is our king? But we've never asked that question before. Maybe we've never even heard it phrased that way before. Who is your king? That is the most important question that we can ask. Regardless of how often you've asked it, how long ago you asked it, we should always be asking ourselves, who is our king? Because everything else falls underneath it. All other truths and realities and hopes that we hold into are a part of Jesus's kingship. So, Mr. Who is your king? Whose kingdom do you want to be a part of? Whose kingdom do you want to be a part of extending? Who is your king?
And maybe you're like, man, I want Jesus to be my king, but it's hard. Well, this is actually what I love maybe most about the ascension. In Matthew 28, Matthew records the ascension, same moment. But he has this amazing line. He says, when the disciples saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. What? This dude who is dead is now alive. You've touched his holes, and now he's like floating into heaven like David Blaine, and you're like, nah, I doubt. I doubt. I got a cousin in Reno, same trick. What? But right there, right there, they're doubting. That reminds us that Jesus is a different kind of king. And he is building a different kind of kingdom. There's other beasts that ravage this world, and Jesus' kingdom is different. There's other kinds of kings in this world who are trying to build empires based upon dominance and control and efficiency. And in those kingdoms, you need to be 100% in. You need to be perfect. You need to be sold out. You need to show up with your A game every time. Jesus' kingdom is different. Jesus' kingdom is built for doubters, strugglers, for outcasts, for those who are rarely welcomed to the table in other kingdoms, for those who are welcomed to the table in other kingdoms, Jesus' kingdom is built for everyone. His kingdom is built on the suffering Son of Man, who in love endured the cross, who in love gave of himself, who in love practiced all of those peculiar habits that we've talked about, so he could build a different kind of kingdom for a different kind of people. So, Missio, if you want Jesus to be your king, you've got a spot in his kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, today we celebrate that you are currently ruling and reigning. We celebrate that you and your authority That is the present hope of the gospel, that right now we trust in that reality. It empowers us, it motivates us, it brings us to the table, and it sends us out into the world, a people of the king. So God, as we celebrate that, as we declare that, and as we hear that you are king, God, shape us into that reality. Form us into a people of your kingdom. with our doubts, with our struggles, with our holdovers and our lack of hope, God, show us that we're welcome. Show us that this place is for us. In your name we pray. Amen. This year, we're going to continue celebrating and responding to the kingdom of Jesus. And so if you're a person and you want Jesus to be your king, we invite you to the table. It's the first place, it's the second place, it's the constant place that we celebrate Jesus' kingship, that we submit to Jesus' kingship, and that we practice the kingdom. So if you want Jesus to be your king, come to the table. With your doubts and your struggles and your worries and your fears, bring them to the table. Bread is gluten-free, the cup is non-alcoholic. And would you continue worshiping with us?